Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah? Surprise, surprise. Six months. Can you guys believe it? Six months. I once remember, I'll tell you very quickly, my sister, and I'll have to be corrected by my father if I'm not remembering rightly, but my sister Kara went to a, a church much like ours years ago, and I remember her saying that the gentleman who led the church taught out of Nehemiah for, I think it was two years. Is that right, Dad? And it was Nehemiah, wasn't it? I thought of that this week when I went, man, we've been now studying Ezra and Nehemiah for six months, church, since January, and we're coming to the close of it at this time. And what I want to ask of you today is this. I, I believe that there is, I believe that the Lord wants to speak something very clearly to us today. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to remove just the, the what is often our default of the, the historical lens of Scripture, particularly Old Testament. And I want to ask for you today to put on your prophetic lenses of Scripture. By that I mean the present ministry of the Holy Spirit to work upon our hearts, to bring clarity, to bring conviction, to bring growth, to bring freedom, all the things that the Spirit of God does on our behalf today. I want to ask that that is the lens by which we approach this text. Because I believe that the Lord wants to commission something very clearly in the hearts of this church, but more broadly to confirm for us part of what we are to be for the church in this day and age. And so I'm going to ask you guys just to approach this morning's text with a very sober mind in, in a very sober heart. And let's, let's push into what God has for us. So chapter 10 obviously has to be held in light of, of course, Ezra and Nehemiah as a whole, but more specifically over the last two weeks, because chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 are essentially just a fluid movement of what God is doing in the hearts of his people. It begins, as Kevin spoke a couple of weeks ago, with a reading of the law, and Kevin talked about the, the plumb line of Scripture and how when it, truth comes to bear upon the hearts and minds of men and women, that the response then is a, is a response of repentance. It's a response of turning, not just turning from, but turning away and turning towards righteousness and towards holiness. And then as Rick spoke last week and took us through just the faithfulness of the mercy of God upon his people throughout the generations. And that was the confession of the people in that moment, having the reality of, of truth bearing upon their hearts. They began to confess their sinfulness. They began to confess what was true of who God is to them and was to their fathers and the generations before. And now we come to chapter 10, and chapter 10 is the resolve of the people. It's the resolve and the renewal of their commitment to the covenant that the Lord God had made with his people. So 8, 9, and 10 is, is quite you know, a, a, a cohesive, if you will, set of chapters. And I want us to keep in mind the foreshadowing lens of the Old Testament as we read this text today. Even in view of the law itself, what the law foreshadowed for the people of God. Remember that God's purpose was never for his people to find perfection within the law. 
The purpose of the Old Testament, the purpose of the Old Covenant, the purpose of the law itself was to show the insufficiency of man and always point the hearts of man towards the all-sufficiency of Christ Jesus. That was the, the purpose and the point of the law. And Paul, and we won't, we won't go into this at this moment, I'm not going to turn to it, but it's just to remind us that Paul addresses this and he picks up on it in the chapter 5 of Romans and he's looking backwards from the new covenant into the old through this lens of, of new covenant reality. And he says that the purpose of the law or the, the purpose of the old covenant, the covenant of works, was to increase the trespass upon the hearts of men, increase the awareness of the trespass and bring an awareness of man's sinfulness. But Paul says that the beauty and the joy of the new covenant is that where sin increased because of our inability to adhere to God's law perfectly and completely, now grace is the overarching theme. It's the overarching trajectory. It's the overarching reality of this new covenant era that we ourselves live within today. And Paul says that grace now reigns. Grace abounds and it reigns in righteousness, which leads us into eternal life. Brothers and sisters, even the law itself was a foreshadow. The Old Testament is a foreshadow of something greater. The new covenant is not a covenant of works like the old was. The new covenant is a covenant of grace because requirements have been fulfilled by Christ Jesus himself and its benefits have been given to us as though they were a gift by Christ and as though we completed them on our own which he did on our behalf, right? We know all this, do we not? And so we find ourselves today at chapter 10, and I want to read chapter 10, and I want to read verses 1 through 38. I'm going to read from the ESV, and please feel free to read from your Bibles. Um, and if you don't have the ESV, you can follow along on the monitors. And this is the, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us receive it today with gladness and with thankfulness. Nehemiah 10 beginning in verse one. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hekeliah, Zedekiah. Those are two individuals. Those are two civil leaders. And then he's gonna give us names of 17 Levites, 21 priests, and a handful which account to about 44 chiefs of the people. I'm not going to read the names this morning. I have proven my worth in that already, and I feel now that I can skip along, coming to verse 26, sorry, to verse 28, but the point is this, is that those are the names of the individuals represented within this seal upon the agreement of this is what we will do. This is the response of the people, and these are the names representing the individuals. Now, verse 28, and then it says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, in other words, all of the people represented within the nation of Israel, singers, temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, 
and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, all the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves, listen to the language, to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring to the first, the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor." Verse 38, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. So the beginning portion, where are the names? It is the individuals who come into covenant both as individuals but also as representatives of family. And in verses 28 on through to the very end, now we have the actual commitment of the people themselves to recovenant or to renew their covenant agreement in faithful obedience to the covenant that really always has been. Because the covenant never ended Right, It was just the people of God who came and went, who were faithful and faithless, who were obedient and disobedient. Is that not always the way, church? The problem is never with God. The problem is always with the hearts of individuals. Is it not true? So we have here the people's intent, and I love, we obligate ourselves such such commitment, such intent, such clarity. And I want to begin by just pointing out this. There was nothing in the lives or the hearts of the people of Israel that was left untouched in this renewal of commitment to the Lord. And chapter 10 here is is so wonderfully applicable and also 
perceptible. The, the reading of the law, sorry, the, in chapter 10, did I say chapter 8? It was, oh, I did say 10. It's the reading of the law in chapter 8 has brought an immediate awareness of the people's sinfulness and their response to this sinfulness was to confess and to turn. And there's four areas that I want to focus on in this chapter where the people renew their commitment in. And I want to begin by again just saying that there is nothing that is left untouched. Brothers and sisters today, there is nothing that is left untouched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the effectiveness of the new covenant of grace for our life. Nothing. Think of the thing that you hold most dearest. God is asking you today to commit to him that very thing, those things. There is nothing that is not his. Everything in the lives of the people of Israel was held in stewardship to the Lord to be used for him and to be used for his kingdom. Everything. What's more, this total commitment foreshadows a greater new covenant reality where all things are Christ because Christ has given us all things. Why is it that God can ask for all? Because he's demanding? Because he's difficult? No, because it's from him that all things are given to us. Such a simple truth that we would all agree with, but yet how hard it is for us to live day in and day out, in moment in moment, in that truthfulness. We hoard, we hold, we cling to, we keep from. And it's, just, it's like we've hidden things from God as though he wouldn't see them. I believe God Today Church is calling us just to a renewal of commitment of all things are for Christ. Let all things be in stewardship of him and for his kingdom this morning. So the four areas where Israel has recovenanted to are this, their marriages, the observance of the Sabbath, their property and finance, and their dedication to the temple. Those four areas, marriages, observance of the Sabbath, their property and their finance, and their dedication to the temple. And I wanna say to us, before I dig into those, that I believe that the Lord is calling us through this chapter to recommit ourselves again in these areas of our life as, as people. Where have we wandered today, church? In your own lives, where have you strayed? Where have you turned from obedience to him and faithfulness in the stewardship and instead chosen to follow your own laws and to follow your own inclinations? Let's let the Lord convict our hearts today and, 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 and turn us once again towards him. So we live now today in this covenant of grace. And before I look at the four things, I want to lay just a really wonderful foundation that I felt was helpful as I was looking and studying for this morning. And look back at verse 29, please. I want to point out something really beautiful. Again, please realize this is, this is nothing that is obligatory. This is the response of the people. The law was read, their sinfulness was, was brought to bear, and their response was, was of their own. It was not compulsory. It was not God saying, all right now, you've messed up. This is what you have to do. It was the people saying, we understand where we've fallen short and we could recommit ourselves again. And look at what they say. <clears throat> that they, 
Verse 29, they join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath, and they say to walk in God's law that was given by Moses and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. Three commitments, to walk, to observe, and to do. Aren't these all essentially the same thing? We probably read it as such. But what's the difference between these three objectives? The first was in walking, it pertains to their behavior. Brothers and sisters, listen. It pertains to our behavior. It was a commitment to a manner of life that was consistent with God's law to behave and to live obediently and distinctly as God's people. That was what they're saying. We will walk according to every law and every command. Our lives will reflect in example and in behavior and distinctiveness the law of God. This brings to mind Peter's question, which I believe is is just as pertinent today as it was all those centuries ago. What sort of people ought we to be, brothers and sisters? God is calling us in this moment, perhaps in our lives now more than ever before, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. Behave in a way that's reflective of the truth of God's covenant with us and with him. That was the first thing that they said that they would do. The second was that they would keep. And this had to do with guarding and watching and protecting. There's explicit intent in this word to proactively preserve that which they have been given by God. So the first was to behave in a way that, that was accurate and and that was consistent with God's law, the second was that they would guard and and protect that which God had given to them. It's similar to Paul's charge to Timothy to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you, Paul says to him. Be watchful over, look over, look out for. How are we to do this today, church? We defend the purity of the the gospel by keeping it from dilution, by protecting it as it's been entrusted to us in order that it would be preserved not just for us, but for the generations that are to come. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? Hopefully I'm communicating this well. I walked into this place this morning. Man, I I feel like I've been fighting for the space of faith all morning that, that God has given to me to bring the word in today. Because I believe that God wants to stir something in our hearts, church. I think that there is a clarion call by the spirit of God for his church to return to such a place of diligence and faithfulness and obedience. And so in this this morning, my desire is that as we hear these words that were once spoken and articulated by God's people, that we ourselves would give our yes and our amen to them as well today for us. That we would observe, that we would keep, and that we would do. And thirdly is just that, that they would do. Not only were they committing to behave consistently with God's commands, not only would they preserve and guard the ancient path, but they also committed to actually doing the commands of the Lord. 
seems like a bit of a no-brainer, doesn't it? But how often do we make intent, statements of intent and not follow through with action? The people said, no. We will keep, we will observe, and we will do. In other words, by doing, they would commit themselves to keeping on in diligent obedience until the fruitfulness of their obedience was seen. Did you hear that? Until the fruitfulness was seen. That's, that's the, the thrust of that word there in the Hebrew, is, is actually doing something or acting with an effect. Oh, that our response would be the same today, church. If anything, it should be greater. I'm not just saying that. I'm actually saying it. If anything, our response should be greater. Why? Because of the covenant of grace that we now live within. Because as I said, Paul in Romans 5, it's grace that abounds, brothers and sisters. Where sin arises and where sin continues, grace increases and overcomes and abounds all the more. And so now the life of the believer in the new covenant, unlike the old covenant, where their commitment was gonna be followed again by a covenant of of oaths and curses, we now are in a covenant of grace where the grace of the Lord Jesus, as Alexa read this morning, teaches us to say no. Not only is it the intent of our heart, but it is God's grace that actually enables us to now live this life. And so what of these four things? I wanna give them to us just within these last few moments and then I'm gonna call us to respond to it this morning and we're gonna respond in three different ways. So the first was they recovenanted or they renewed their commitment to the covenant of God First, in their marriages, and it's in verse 30, they say this, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters to be ours. I talked about this when I taught Ezra 9. So you can go back and you can listen to it for a bit more than I'm gonna say this morning. But listen, this is the point. This was not a matter of racial concern. This was a strictly spiritual matter on the heart of the Lord. It had everything to do with preserving the distinctiveness of his people, the purity of the message of who God was to his people and what ultimately would be the revelation of Jesus Christ that would come from this seed, if you will. And I know that it's difficult in 21st century Western America for us to remove ourselves from from the context of gosh, It just sounds like it's some type of ethnic cleansing. No, this was God preserving something much more than just a people's race. It was about a spiritual matter. The people of Israel were mixing with the people from the surrounding kingdoms and the result was that their distinctiveness and their identity, listen please, their distinctiveness and their identity had become diluted to the point that some of God's people were indistinguishable from the surrounding kingdoms. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Do I need to make that point? Some of God's people were becoming indistinguishable from the surrounding kingdoms. 
And then it's going to tell us what's more. It records in chapter 13, which we've not yet gotten to, that the result of this intermarriage was that the children of the people of Israel, he says, could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. That was the result. Their dilution led to not only the indecipherable nature of their own identity, but their children knew nothing of the covenant with God. Church, we run the risk of this very thing. It is happening today within his church. His church, in many ways, is becoming indecipherable from the surrounding culture. And our children don't know the language of the law of grace. They know the language of the culture that surrounds. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you help us? Lord, help us. Help us to raise children. Help us ourselves. Father, to be separate, to be set apart, to be dedicated, Lord, solely and wholly to you. Lord, keep our children from the ways of the world. Father, in our faithfulness and in our diligence of obedience, Lord, would you kindly be merciful to our children. Lord, we commit ourselves today to teaching our children the language of the kingdom of God, the ways of the kingdom of God. Perhaps one of the greatest matters of concern in my heart for the church today, brothers and sisters, through compromise, what makes the church uniquely God's is becoming less and less decipherable. The church is like, it's like Israel at Sinai who, who turns from their worship and their focus of the, of the cloud of God who has descended upon the mountain. And because of their lack of faith in the moment and their wondering of what in the world has happened to Moses, even though God's is visible in such a tangible sense, what do the people do? They return their work to the worship of the old ways. And they focus on the created things and they begin to worship the golden calf. The church is like that today. Even in the midst of God doing things like what Kevin shared, just something so wonderful and simple and all the ways that we testify of the power of God and the faithfulness of God, yet the church still returns so often because we in our hearts turn so often to the worship of earthly things. It's easy when I talk about the church for us to forget that we're part of the church. And there's degrees on this spectrum, and sometimes I paint with a broad brush, but you get the point of what I'm making this morning. Oh, church, that we would be like, like Israel in the Passover celebration, going through our homes with diligence to ensure that every speck of leaven has been removed, that there is nothing that is permeating any part of our homes. Whether you have children today or not, Maybe you have children, maybe you're a hopeful parent, maybe you're a grandparent. Maybe you have spiritual children. Maybe your children are those who are here within this body today, whom God has given to you to invest into. The point still is valid, that we ourselves would be so set apart unto him. Let's recommit ourselves to that. Brothers and sisters, what shapes you what feeds you? What fills you? Answer that question today. What excites you? 
Where do you go for wisdom? If we disproportionately ingest political commentary, ingest social media, ingest news and social commentary, or even Christian commentary, if it's disproportionate to our ingesting of truth, which is the word of God. Church, there is no substitute for the word of God. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. Study the word. Love the word. Understand the word as best as you can. It's been given to us to be known and to be understood, to be applied and to be lived out. Even the deep mysteries, God meets us in our place of diligence and obedience when we seek them out. There is nothing that is too profoundly deep for you to understand in this book that has been given to us. And there is nothing that can take its place. Not even the best teachings of the theologians that I respect more than anything else. Nothing compares to the word of God when the Holy Spirit plants its seed and does his work. Amen? Where do we go for these things? I need to move quickly. Secondly, was a recovenant to the Sabbath. And they say in verse 31... Their commitment is this, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 16, the commandment given by God is that his people are to keep the Sabbath, observing it throughout their generations as a covenant forever. And the Lord says this, It's a sign between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So for us today, what's the significance of the Sabbath? For us, at the very least, while we've lost a lot of the cultural application of what Israel held in the Sabbath, can we not at least say that that a recovenant or a renewal of the commitment to the covenant of the Sabbath is both for rest and for worship? Two things that we struggle to do in 21st century America, or at least the right kind of rest and the right kind of worship. Can I say this? Recreation is not rest. It can fill us and it has its place. But the type of rest that I'm speaking of, the type of rest that the Sabbath represents, both a striving from work, our earthly efforts, our weekly efforts, our daily efforts, Because God knows that in our frail humanity and in our limitedness, we cannot continue to sustain a 24-hour, seven days a week, all year long. So God gives us a pattern of giving rest to our bodies. And there's so much more in the Old Testament law that comes with the Sabbath that we don't have time this morning. But if I can just encourage us both to rest from our earthly work, but also it points to, in the New Covenant, our rest from strivings in Christ Jesus. He is our Sabbath rest as it pertains to holiness and righteousness. Now, does that mean that we don't pursue righteousness? No, no. It means that the the covenant of works, having to attain a level of righteousness through what we do, is now reversed. We do because we have attained a level of righteousness through Christ Jesus. Our righteousness results in a behavior and a way of living. So resting is not only a reminder to cease from our earthly labors, but in Christ to find rest, to cease from our striving 
beyond the righteousness that Christ has always already provided. And it also represents worship. It's out of obedience to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. To gather with God's people in faithful obedience to God's call to assemble and enjoy knowing that when we do, it's God's design to dwell among us as a foretaste of our eternal reality. That's what this morning was. Did you, did you sense just the tangible presence of God as we worshiped in song this morning? Did you sense that? It's amazing how, how like even just being up here and, and, and leading us to a space, this has nothing to do with me. Now I can ruin it by singing really bad or playing really poorly. But when we come together collectively church in a place of faith, man, it is, it's undeniable that we've, we, like we've, we've hit something. God is here. God is speaking. And it's in those moments as we endeavor this morning, just as the gift of grace was manifest upon us through tongues and through an interpretation in that moment. And as the word of God was brought forth and it was given prophetically to us to build us and to encourage us, church, that's the goal. That's what we lean into. That's God responding to our worship. This is why this is so wonderful and so important. And this is why this morning I believe that God, for his church, wants us to be forerunners and those who keep the covenant of remembering the Sabbath like the people of Israel did that day. The importance of this and the importance of the knowledge, the understanding of the righteousness given to us in which, as we sing in that song, in Christ alone may our striving cease. Thirdly, they recommitted to God their property. It says that the crops of the seventh year and also their financial security, that they, were, they would forego the exaction of debt. And we don't, again, have time to go back through all of this. We saw some of this already. It's been dealt with in God's people. But why does it seem like God always wants to touch, highlight, or have us be aware of money? Why do you think that is? Someone lobby an answer to that question. To keep us free. God wants to touch our money because our money is his money. Because our property is his property. Because it's, the, it's, it's these things, that which we amass, both financially and both just earthly, the, or you know, possessions, those things that we amass, we have such a tendency to hold on to. And they have such a grip upon our heart. And I think it's God's grace that, that his word deals with resource and finance it deals with that which we have and possess so regularly because as Andy said, he wants to keep us free. And so they recommitted themselves and it's the word of Paul that we know so well but I wanna read it again because it's so pointedly stated in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, and it's such a helpful recalibration for us, church. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Do you not know, church, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, brothers and sisters. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And then Paul says, so therefore, because of this reality, glorify God with your body. Listen to the logic. If our bodies are not ours, then surely everything that we amass and touch through the usage of our bodies are not ours either. 
If this very thing doesn't belong to me, then certainly this doesn't belong to me either because this was gained through these, right? Paul's logic actually is really profound. The people in recognition of their sin exacting debts on fellow brothers and sisters, exploiting them for personal gain. Their reform was to a spirit of kingdom stewardship and generosity. And again, there's much more here than we have time for, but listen, it was simply this. It was a confession by the people to find their provision in Jehovah Jireh, God who provides. That's what it was. All of this is yours because you give to us all things and you will give to us all that is needed. And lastly, they recommitted themselves to the tending of the temple. In verses 35 through 36, he says this, or the people commit to this, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of the ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle. The matter here, church, was of first fruits both of the ground and of their families. In the old covenant, the first fruits were the very best of the best of the best. And it was the first, first fruit. It was the first thing they gave to God. Why? To keep us free. To keep them free. To remind themselves. Listen, again, another new covenant foreshadow that God would give to us his very best. It was a picture of the inheritance and the blessing that would soon be for God's people. The very best of the very best. And Paul picks up on this theme and he reminds us that Jesus himself was the first fruit given for us by God. For Israel, it was a sacrificial giving under the conviction that in verse 39, and I love how it ended with this, that they must not neglect the house of their God. It was a sign, church, that God comes first. It's a sign for us today. What is it, the first fruits that we give? Now, it's not just the first fruits, but again, we give God everything. We give to him all because, again, he gave to us all through Christ Jesus. And as we give gladly and as we give regularly to the temple, both his church and his body, We do so as a sign that God comes first in our hearts, that we have faith in God, that we trust God, that God is worth all that we have to give. Amen? So I want to do something. Oh, man, the time, it just flies by here. Why does it go so quick on Sundays? We are having fun, Judy. Here's what I want to do. If you're visiting this morning and uh, this just feels too long, then there's no problem with you needing to go. Um, Would someone go and retrieve the kids and we can bring the teachers and the children back in here? But this is what I want to do, church, without losing, thanks so much, guys, without losing our momentum, just focus on me for a moment. As part of this faith community, we covenant ourselves both unto one another and unto the, to, to the leadership and the leadership to this church, I just felt this morning that we were to actually ha- have an act of recovenanting. 
And so I wanna ask if you would join this morning. If you're, if you're visiting today, you're under no compulsion to do this. But if you're a part of this church, member or non-member, it does not matter. I wanna ask that we would stand together with one voice like the people of Israel. And I wanna just lead us through some statements of recommitment. Commitments that we have made when we come into covenant with each other. And I just felt that in doing that, it would be a symbol and a gesture and a a physical act of us in faith committing ourselves again to being this type of people that God is calling us to be. Can we do this together? So again, if you're visiting this morning, listen, you're welcome to participate. Just if you're of faith, participate in this act because it is a significant act. So let's stand together. And I wanna just do this. Would you walk us through, I'm gonna put up on the, on the monitors statements of covenantal commitment. And I can't cue it up because I don't have my thing. So would you guys just take care of us? And what I wanna do is I want for us to read these together out loud as one voice and as one intent. So let's begin with this. This is our first confession. We will seek by the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ to live carefully in this world, forsaking its lusts and denying ungodliness and worldliness, endeavoring to live a faithful and holy life. We will not forsake the regular assembling of God's people, knowing and believing that to gather with the church is to the glory of his name as he is worshiped and his greatness and wisdom are declared and made known. Can we say amen to that? We will diligently guard the unity of the Lord's church by abstaining from any acts or words that would divide, discourage, or destroy the unity of his church. Amen. We will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over other covenant members through friendship and encouragement, praying for and faithfully entreating and exhorting as occasion may require. We will steward the resources that God has given us, including our time, talents, and treasure by serving cheerfully and sacrificially, by edifying the church with God's grace through our lives faithfully, and by financially giving generously and regularly to support this ministry and to help with the relief for the poor and for the spread of the gospel to all nations. Amen. We will submit to the loving, watchful leadership of this church, both to their instruction and discipline in the spirit of humility and teachableness. We will honor this covenant and hold to it by God's grace, and in so doing, knowing that our lives are not our own, if the Lord ordains that we move or leave this family, we commit to going in peace with the confirmation and joyful recognition of the other members of this church and the eldership team. Is there more? I think there is one more. With this statement of our commitment and with the conviction of the will of the Lord, we joyfully and fully commit ourselves to walking, keeping, and observing all that we have confessed and all that the Lord has commanded to the glory of his name. Can we say amen together? Brothers and sisters, these are are deep statements of confession. But again, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables us to keep them, that when we fail, allows us 
to return again in a spirit of both repentance and turning and yet enabled us once again to get up and to continue and to continue. May the Lord be glorified through this church, brothers and sisters. May this church, as I said, be, be a forerunner for the type of church that needs to be present in this world today. May we commit ourselves to this diligently to the glory of his name. Amen.